So this guy's a real piece of shit, huh? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to say a trigger warning for like everything, like yeah. kids and sexual violence. And also to my mom, oh. if you're listening, for the language oh. I'm about to <laughs> yeah. use to describe this absolute piece of Barbara, shit. Barbara, this one might not be for you, Barbara. Hi, Jillian Bezavali. Hi, Patrick Hines. You guys, if you want more Jillian and me, join us on the Patreon. There's <laughs> over like 300 full ad-free bonus episodes to download a binge right this second. It's where we cover all of the series. Right now, we're in the middle of Lula Rich Girl. We've only had like three or four fights about it. I'm kind of on the side <laughs> no. of the MLM. You've only watched one app. Let's reconvene. We'll make up by probably the end of the second app. We're not even really fighting. No, but it's we so we do all those like long-form series, but then we also have ad-free versions of these episodes right here. So it's sort of yeah. like double whammy. It's a double whammy, you guys, yeah. if you want to hear our Take on Tiger King, Lorena, Serial Season 1, The Staircase, The Vow, Night Stalker, All Be Gone in the Dark. Yeah, Heaven's Gate. Did you say Lorena? Yeah, the Menendez brothers, yep. Making a Murderer, The Jinx, all all of those bad The boys. Murder of Lacey Peterson. It's all yeah. right there for you guys. Patreon.com slash True Crime Obsessed. What else, girl? You got anything else to say for humanity this week? Well, it's going to be late, but tomorrow is my anniversary with Mike, Super Hot Husband oh, Mike. Oh, happy anniversary, girl. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. That's it. That's all I have going on. Good. That's plenty. <laughs> all right, girl, what are we talking about today? We are talking about the 2020 episode covering the dating game killer. It's just called the dating game killer, but it's a 2020 episode. Guys, a real piece of shit, girl. He's and you a real wanted piece to cover shit. this one. This is your pick. Here's my question, though. First of all, where are we with the name they gave this guy? It's not sexy like Night Stalker, but it's not stupid like Ear Ons. Where are we? It's very specific. It's very, yeah. it's on the nose. Like, he was on the dating game that one time. Great. But he was also like, <laughs> and the coming up on is insane. Again, it always is. That super creepy, I'll come and find you song. I'm over it, 2020. Yeah. Over it. Please welcome Rodney Alcala. It was one of the most famous dating shows ever. Looking back, it is chilling to realize that this iconic show would unknowingly feature a remorseless killer. The so-called dating game killer is one of the country's most notorious criminals, but one most people have never heard of. He had sociopathic personality traits. He had no shame. He walks up and down the streets and asks people if he could take their picture. What better place to be a sexual predator than to go to a feeding frenzy like New York? She'd been strangled with nylon stockings. It's the talk of the town. Rodney Alcala has murdered at least five women. The FBI put Rodney Alcala on the 10 most wanted list. Oh my God, will Alcala get away with it? The body count is piling up. He goes on the hunt for more victims, and there's absolutely nothing to stop him. And five, four, three, two, one. So we're in Wyoming. It's 1977. We meet a woman named Kathy Thornton. We learn she's Christine Thornton's younger sister. Sometimes I think Chris is probably hitchhiking, and he just probably stopped for her. Chris was very trusting. So, you know, that was her downfall. I don't think Kathy's doing this, but let's not blame Chris. Whoever murdered her, that was the ultimate downfall, murdering somebody. Because the thing is, Chris just vanished. Like, in the summer of 1977, Chris just vanished, and the family has no idea what happened. Yeah, because she and her boyfriend at the time wanted to head to Montana and pan for gold. I know. Old-timey. Old-timey. But then this, like, garbage boyfriend ditches her and leaves her pregnant and alone in Montana looking for gold. To which I said, where the fuck is this guy? Like, why isn't anyone looking for him? He's on my list, too. Oh, God help him. (laughs) Just to be clear, this jumps around a lot. We're all over the country, Uh and we're spanning many decades. So just Uh try to stay with us. If it feels like it makes no sense, it will eventually. And honestly, rest easy knowing that that means that some serial killer got away with murder for decades and decades, you guys. We're doing great. Everything's great. It's the fact that it was so fucking avoidable that really uh-huh. makes my blood boil, but we'll get there. Early. Sorry, Mom. Just don't even listen. I don't. You shouldn't be listening to this podcast no. at all. Mom. Loving you. Wait, she's a pain at the 20. We need her, girl. She's so... She's always like, thank... It's sending me texts and thanking me for the stuff we send them in the mail. Like, Mom, you, you know you can get this for free, but I appreciate the 20 bucks so much. Barbara, I really appreciate it, and so does Stacey's college fund. <laughs> 
So the following summer, the summer of 78, younger sister Kathy goes to San Antonio to do her own investigation and to also fucking try to track down that piece of shit boyfriend who left her pregnant and on the side of the road in Wyoming. Right. And so Kathy's investigating on her own because once again, the cops are like, no, your sister's not a missing person. She was an adult. I'm sorry. I, know. I mean, I know this was 1978, but we're not going to do this anymore, people. Sometimes adults go missing because something bad happened. Yes. And then so they just cut to like years later. In 82, this uh, herder out in the middle of nowhere comes across uh, a pile of bones, obviously human remains. This is really bad. Trigger warning, everybody. It's yeah. Chris's bones and, quote, the bones of an infant. Now, the thing is, we know now that they're Chris's bones. At the time in 82, there's no identification on the body. So, like, the case looking for Chris goes cold, and nobody knows who these bones belong to. So, we're going to come back to that when we get to the end. But, like, Chris has gone missing. This is Chris, but no one's going to know that for 40 years. Yeah, we're just going to... It's complicated enough. We're telling you now. Totally. I hate to give you a spoiler, but just stay with us. Just hang on. But guess who? <laughs> Here, Matt Murphy. He was just with us with the Dateline app in a lonely place. The surfer, lawyer who no. hated Ed Shin, who's like, I fucking hate you, Ed Shin. That's Matt Murphy. That's the same guy? Surfer Matt. He's back. Matt Murphy is hot. Matt Murphy is sexy. He knows his shit. You know, and I like a guy who knows their shit. <laughs> So he's here. He's a former DA. He's super young. Yeah. The case goes on for decades. So Matt Murphy is eventually a very big part of this case. But for now, he's just telling us what he knows. He's just one of our talking heads here. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going back to 1968, you guys. And as we know, 1968 was tumultuous. Cue the royalty-free 60s music. <laughs> so 68 was um, tumultuous. Martin Luther King, Robert F. Kennedy have been assassinated. Andy Warhol is shot that year. It's the year Martin Luther King was murdered, Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated, and Andy Warhol was shot. And I said, one of these things is not exactly <laughs> not like, like the, other. the other. What's interesting, Chris Connolly's here. Do you know Chris Connolly? No. Chris Connolly used to be on MTV, and now he works for ABC News. It was like Chris oh. Connolly and Kurt Loder, like the cool what? news guy. Yeah. Anyway, he, he tells us... <laughs> Okay, I thought I was going to get a better, a bigger reaction. Your knowledge of, like, music, television, history news is vast. Chris Connolly and Kurt Loder. Are you kidding me? Kurt Loder helped me get through the death of Kurt Cobain, okay? Kurt Loder's the one who told me about it when I was way too young to be watching anything. Anyway, Chris Connolly is just like, you know, the 60s, it was counterculture, it was anti-establishment, and of course, the dating game. And I'm like, what the what? So this is the part where I said, I feel like 2020 is trying really hard to connect the dating game and this story to the political and, like, social movements at the time, to which I was like, 2020, nobody needs that just no. give us the murder story like and i don't say that lightly like we all just want to know what happened you don't need to connect it to the culture it's fine they're weirdly trying to make sense of why they're calling him the dating game killer and it's like right. can we just solve the right. thing just arrest the guy I, I don't give a shit i don't care i learned in another podcast recently about the taco bell killer like oh my god that was our podcast how fucking dare what? you <laughs> get out of here unsubscribe, hanging up, get the fuck out of it. That was Ben Henry. I make a lot and I listen to even more. Jesus right. Christ. <laughs> I'm not so subtly changing the topic. Changing subjects. So the dating game children at home. The premise was the female asking questions of three bachelors who sat on the other side of a partition. She wasn't able to see them, of course. And she picked one for a date. And then she met the guy that she had picked and they were awarded a date. Based on their answers, she'd pick a winner, they'd go on a date, bada bing, bada boom. So the thing is, our friend surfer Matt Murphy says the dating game, quote, Looking back, it is chilling to realize that this iconic show celebrating love and romance would unknowingly feature a remorseless killer was celebrating love and romance, Matthew. No. It was a way to like hopefully get laid and push as, as much as you can on national television with the innuendo. Celebrating love and romance, it was not. Matthew. And later on, we're going to meet the executive producer and the showrunner, and oh my goodness, we are just getting started. Let me tell... Okay, okay, I have words for them later. So put a pin in the dating game. We're going to September 1968. We're going to learn a fucking terrible story about a young girl named Tally Shapiro. This is truly a trigger warning for everybody, you guys. It's very violent. It includes sexual violence and an eight-year-old girl, so just be, be aware. This is by far the hardest part of for me to watch. When I was listening to the Dating Game Killer podcast, mm -hmm. this happened in the first five minutes, and I turned it off never to press play again. Again. I couldn't handle yeah, it. It's uh it's real bad. I mean, there's really no joking about it. It's it's horrifying. So yeah. uh <laughs> let's dive in, shall we? Yeah, Tally.
Kelly is an eight-year-old girl. She lives at the Chateau Marmont in Hollywood, which if you don't know, it's like the super fancy, fancy pants, you know, hotel in Hollywood. Her dad is a music industry executive. She's got a mom, a sister, and a brother. And I went, why are they living at a hotel? Is this just a fancy thing I don't know about? And then they're like- Because their house burned down. <laughs> I know. Oh that my like, God. I know. No, I know. I just, they didn't tell us that first. So that was my question. And then I got the answer and I went, oh, their house burned down. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, because the the Chateau is like long and short-term residences for a celebrity. So like Lindsay Lohan lived there. Uh John Belushi lived there. It was a place where like fancy Hollywood types could live. I would love to live in a hotel. I'm not, I've never (laughs) done that. I can't, that's, it's incredibly (laughs) expensive to do. But so, and we hear the story from Stella Sands, who's the author of the Dating Game Killer book. So she's here with us throughout. And I have some words for her because she (laughs) tells us what happens to Tally. This adorable little girl would skip to school each morning, carefree, loving, wearing her little white Mary Janes, and uh, then the horror story of Tally begins. She's eight years old walking to school. Daisy is seven. She'll be eight in a couple months. Like, the world is a real different place today than it was in 1968. The idea of an eight-year-old walking to school by themselves, oh my God. Yeah, I was outside my house in Queens in the late 80s, early 90s, and some guy tried to get me to get into his car, and I didn't. Oh my God. Uh, Who would I be hosting this podcast with? (laughs) There was also the person who, uh, some like older guy who just always wanted me to sleep over his house, and that happened like once, and my dad can't even talk about it. It came up not too long ago. My dad still gets enraged. He was like, "Uh, I know on certain terms that I tell him you'd be fucking sleeping over his house and we never saw him again. It's all bad, everybody. It doesn't matter what year it is. So this guy pulls up. Just going to be honest. It's all, it's just shitty. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow, it's all bad. So this guy pulls up to Tally. And the man leans out and says, hmm, I have a beautiful picture I'd like to show you. And I told him I didn't talk to strangers. And that's when he told me he knew my parents. And I really didn't want to get in the car. um, But... I was raised to respect my elders. Thank God Tally is here to tell us the story. I needed to know that she was. Because, like, this concerned citizen follows this car to an apartment where he watches this older man and Tally, at eight years old, get out of the car and go into this building. And he's like, nope, nope, no, 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 And he calls the fucking cops. And so while we know that someone's following them, Tally tells us what's happening in the car. And she says, you know, of course, she didn't want to get in the car, but, you know, he knew my parents and she was trying to be respectful. And so... she said. I was raised to respect my elders and I was like oh god we can't teach our kids anything and we yeah. have to teach them everything all at the same time how do you do it how do you do yeah. it I just said to that guy I'm not getting in your car and then I went home right. <laughs> I was two houses down from my yeah. house oh my anyway, god and you say I'm a polite person so it's possible it's true, it's true. <laughs> so he's like alright cool I'm gonna give you a ride to school but first let's go to my house I have this poster I really want to show you yeah. and Tally is like nope nope red flags alarm bells she wants to get out of the car but she doesn't know what to do. She doesn't know, thankfully, no. that there's someone following them, hopefully right. about to save her life. So they call the LAPD and Detective Chris Camacho Jr. is there. Yeah, and first of all, I'm like, where's the fucking Nobel Prize for the guy who followed them and then called the fucking cops? Like, holy shit. Hero, where are you? I would like to celebrate your life. But Seriously. the cop gets here, he goes right up to the apartment and he knocks on the door. He can hear commotion on the other side. Then some, like, naked fucking guy peers out the window. He's like, oh, I was in the shower. Sorry. The cop is like, I see this uh, male person on the other side, no clothes, not dripping with water, no towel. And I said, okay, you need to open the door right now. I need to come in. And he said, wait, wait, let me put my pants on. And I said, okay, you got three seconds. You got three seconds, three, two, one, kick. (laughs) So Chris the cop is here and he, to this day, cannot get through the story without crying through it. And I'm not saying that as a joke. I'm saying that this guy, as as much as Tally was traumatized, walking in, seeing what this guy must have seen, he he sees it every day of his life to this day. Because basically he's like, as I walked in the door, the fucking bad guy runs out the back door and there's this unconscious girl on the floor, naked, blood fucking everywhere. (sighs) And there's a bar on her neck that had been put there to fucking choke her like to strangle her and kill her and so he's got a choice to make he can either chase after the guy or try to render life-saving aid to the girl and that's what he does thank fucking god yeah he chooses to save tally and so like when she goes to the hospital the doctors are like well you know she has no chance well guess what she's here today so suck it doc i know (laughs) <laughs> but the, it's it's chaos down here, Tom, because the cop is trying to save 
Tally's life, but the guy ran out the back door and the cops aren't sure where to go or who to help or yeah. whatever. But they search the apartment and they find an ID. And this piece of shit's name is Rodney Alcala. I found his ID. He, we determined he was a student at UCLA in the photography department. They searched that house and there are references in reports of hundreds and hundreds of photographs of young women and boys in various stages of dress, in various stages of vulnerability that were in Rodney Alcala's possession. They say in various stages of vulnerability and thank yeah. God they spare us the definition of whatever the fuck that means. I know, I know. And like, they immediately say we have to get this monster off the street. I mean, yeah. they're just like, this is like a house, a hell house right now. Yeah. So after 32 days in a coma, Tally, this badass eight-year-old, she yeah. lives. Yeah. And Tally tells us the aftermath of what she went through. She says, look. My parents mentioned nothing. It was never brought up. It was never spoken about. I remember walking into my classroom and everyone looking at me like I was supposed to be dead. My parents never brought it up. We never spoke about it. We moved to Mexico to, and she is like told to suppress it and they don't get Tally the mental health help that she needs. And she seems okay today. I'm also like, I thought your dad was like a record executive. I was like, I, I guess Streisand's gonna make her own records. I was like, well, okay, they just moved to Puerto Vallarta and they're just gone. And I was also like, Streisand's can we get fine. She, she still needs to lighten up. That's a lady page <laughs> joke. Lighten up. <laughs> Show me one person who takes themselves more seriously than Barbara Streisand. I, I wish I could. I can't. I would. It's Barbara. Babs. A hundred thousand percent. It's still the holiday season. Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in one horse open sleigh. Hey, jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride one horse open sleigh. Come on, you all know it. You don't know how much I needed to see you do that with the arms. Jingle bell, jingle bell. It's the happiest I've All the way on a one horse open. Burn. I can't do it because my voice. <laughs> you know what? I don't need it. I have everything I need. That fed me in a, in a certain kind of way that I needed, and I thank you for it. I really do. I needed that. And so mm -hmm. he was in the army in the early 60s. In 1963, he gets a pass, like a weekend pass or whatever. He goes to New York where we learn. While in New York, he assaults a girl. He hits her over the head with a Coke bottle. That girl was able to run away. He had sociopathic personality traits. He, he had no shame, and he didn't, you know, feel guilty about anything that he did. And the army sweeps the whole thing under the rug. They get him evaluations. Doctors are screaming to high heaven that this guy's a fucking psychopath. And the army's like, no, he's fine. We're just going to honorably discharge him. Nothing to see here. So this is the beginning, everybody, just so you know, to save you a little bit of the rage that I went through today. This is a theme. This guy yes. gets away with murder, literally. He gets yeah. away with everything. Everything. So he goes back to L.A. He's in the UCLA fine arts program. He's a photography major. He's living less than a mile away from the Chateau Marmont where Tally lived. And so remember how Tally went to Mexico? Yeah. The cops are like, well, maybe Rodney went to Mexico because he had family there and he used to uh -huh. live there. So he thought maybe they thought maybe is this more to use a Keith Morrison word like diabolical than we thought? Would he have followed Tally to Mexico for some reason? Right. And so they say that like it takes three years, but eventually the FBI puts him on the 10 most wanted list. But in that three years, he's like fucking raising hell. He moves back to New York and he changes his name to John Berger. And some talking head is like, What better place to be a sexual predator than go to a feeding frenzy like New York? What better place as a sexual predator to go than the feeding frenzy like New York? Oh, that's Detective <laughs> Steve Bracini. He's, uh, I have Steve some words for him too. He's like, oh, is, is that not better? Like a feeding frenzy in New York? This guy <laughs> loves everything here. So now we learn about Cornelia Crilly. She's from Queens. She's gorgeous and funny. There are so few of us. I know. Um, <laughs> no, she's Cornelia's like, she's she's amazing. And she starts dating this guy, Leon Borstein, and he's described as her dream man. I gotta tell you, we see a picture of Leon Borstein. He's here now, but we see a picture yeah. of him from back in the day. Gorge. I also wanted to point out, Cornelia, we're told. She was beautiful. She had long, beautiful Irish hair and Irish eyes. She had long, beautiful Irish hair and Irish eyes. What does that mean, girl? Um, it could mean many things, but okay. in her, this photo of her, when you think Irish, you think maybe like red hair or blonde hair or something. She has brown hair. So uh -huh. I just think Leon loved her and whatever she was, she was gorgeous to him. Yeah. So I think that's good. But at first I was like, oh, she's, oh, okay. I would, right. okay, great. She's that kind of gorgeous. Just not the gorgeous. Okay, great. She had big aspirations, you guys. She wanted to be a TWA stewardess, which you're saying was a very prestigious job. I'm like, we are not going to rewrite history. Didn't they weigh them in at the beginning of each flight? Yeah, but everyone wanted to do it. 
a TWA flight attendant. And let me tell you, the photos, they're like out of a movie. Like, I know. it's unbelievable. But, so wait, you are you are you don't have anything bad to say for an industry that is weighing their workers before they let them do their jobs? I have a thousand things to say about it. We talked about it endlessly on DB Cooper, yeah. but I have bigger <laughs> fish to fry here. How okay. many things am I gonna be like fuck don't don't weigh okay. them in? Don't do that. <laughs> and everyone's calling them sweetheart and baby I, and touching yeah. them. Like, leave them alone. Don't touch no. them. Don't even look at them, honestly. No. Don't even keep your head down and your mouth shut. <laughs> oh. there, there she is. There she is. <laughs> We also learned that Cornelia and some of her girlfriends get a place on 83rd Street, right where I used to live, by the way. They call this area the Girl Belt because so many young, like, female professionals were moving there and, like, moving out on their own for the first time ever. First of all, barf, but second of all, double (laughs) barf because when you see it written about, it says the Girly Belt, not even girl, the Girly Belt. Girly Belt. Oh my Gross. God. Barf, barf, triple barf. So it's June 1971 and Cornelia is missing. Her mother calls Leon, her dream man, to go check on her. Yeah. Leon can't find her, doesn't know where she is. He calls the cops. And they came over. I was at the front door when they broke in the back window. They opened the door. They told me that she had been killed. And she was raped and brutally murdered. Yeah. And so it's a super brutal crime scene. There are no suspects. Yeah. And also, they're like, there were no clues in the case court cold. This is the era where like if the fucking murderer wasn't caught in the hallway, there were no clues. There was like right. no way of finding these people. Like these cases went cold so fast because like DNA wasn't a thing. Do yep. they know about fingerprints? Who knows? Like, yeah, all no cameras, hear... no GPS, right. like nothing. Everything we hear in every one of these murders is like there were no clues the case went cold. It happens in every single case. So now we're in New Hampshire and remember this Rodney guy was going under the name John Berger. Yeah. So we're in New Hampshire and Rodney or John Berger would spend his summers as a camp counselor at some arts camp. I wrote, I'm guessing the background check situation for these arts camps in the 70s weren't great. You know what I mean? Well, John Berger didn't do anything wrong. Rodney Alcala did. I bet John Berger doesn't have like a social security number. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, 1,000%. He was born four days ago. Like, I'm just saying, like, we (laughs) see like some B-roll of this arts camp and it looks like such a fun fucking place. Why is it going to be ruined by having a serial killer work there? I know, but this is actually like, this story is kind of out of a movie. It's kind of amazing. Two campers take the little dirt road down to the post office and all of a sudden it starts pouring. They run inside the post office. And there's the good old FBI 10 most wanted list. Look at this and they're like, hey, that's Mr. Berger. Wouldn't you know it? I'll be darned. That's our art counselor. Is that not Mr. Berger? Like, what's going on? They go back to the camp. They tell another counselor. He's like, keep your fucking mouth shut. Shut up. Shut up. I'm going to go back there and see this for myself. He goes there and sees that Mr. Berger is on the 10 most wanted. Can you imagine anything more terrifying? Yes, I can. Because what he says is, don't say a word to anyone about anything. You stay here with a potential murderer and I'll head off to the post office in the rain. That's a Patrick Hines move if ever I heard one. You two stay put. Don't tell anybody about anything. No. I'm going to go. Mr. Hines, are you sure that that's the best thing? Yes. I, I, yeah, I am. What? I am Bye. in charge. No. I'm going to hit the liquor store on the way there and the way back. Don't ask any questions. Yeah, because of you. You want you want to upset me again? Ask no. more questions. I got to go. I'm already late. <laughs> So this counselor is like, holy shit, that's the same guy. So suddenly the FBI is involved. New Hampshire calls California and California calls New York. And they're like, hey, guess what? We found him. His name's Rodney Alcala. Here we go. And they like L.A. is very excited because they're going to get him for what they did to Tally. They fly out to New Hampshire. They get him. They bring it back. They're like, he's going to jail for 20 years for this. No question about it. And remember, it's been three years. So they're really excited to finally get this guy. And so he's charged with kidnapping, rape, child molestation and torture. Good God. But you guys, it gets worse. Why wouldn't it? Why are we here? Because Tally and her family went to Mexico, Uh the only charge they could put on him was a plea deal for child molestation because Tally rightly like wasn't going to be re-traumatized and testify. But my question is like, isn't there enough evidence without her testimony? What about that guy, Chris, who can't even get through the story without crying? Bless his heart. And I don't know, the fucking photo evidence? Like you're going to rely on the fact that an eight-year-old girl isn't going to testify about the trauma she just went through? Give me a fucking break. And not only that, would they finally do this plea deal for molestation? His sentence is literally called indeterminate. With an indeterminate sentence, it's sliding. It's not determined. And then the parole board has more flexibility in determining whether someone's been rehabilitated or whether they're a danger to the community. This meant that Rodney Alcala 
would have yearly parole reviews. He gets yearly parole reviews? He gets out in 34 months with good behavior because he was a model citizen in prison, girl. Yeah, we hear 10,000 times about how he's charming and manipulative. Shut up. I hate everything. I don't care. He's out on the streets after 34 months. Oh, no, I wonder what's going to happen. We have 40 more minutes left of this goddamn thing. Yeah, within 13 months, he's caught smoking pot on the beach with a 13-year-old girl. Two months later, girl. Two months later, he's on the beach. With a 13-year-old. And he gets two and a half years for that. But guess what? He's released once again. So he's been in prison twice for being a terrible monster to underage girls, right? He gets out after two and a half years. And he's like, I just need a break from this crazy world. Got to get out of the rat race. (laughs) Hey, parole officer, can I go on vacation? And the cop's like, you know what? You've been through a whole hell of a lot. Kick back. (laughs) Don't you worry about us. Everything. It's fine. You go enjoy yourself, okay? Let your hair down, Rodney. God bless. So Rodney goes back to New York. I wrote, great. Now it's New York, July 1977. It's the Son of Sam summer. Yeah. It's also a difficult time for everybody because it was hot and steamy and the garbage wasn't being collected. Oh, Oh, yeah. That does really sound terrible. And then there's a blackout and then the looting and then, oh, a murderer. It's like, what a mess. What a mess. Meanwhile, Barbara and Natilio Pensavalli are living through it with aplomb right now. With with aplomb. By the skin of their teeth did they escape the son of Sam. That's a true story. Go listen to our episode on it if you want to hear more. <laughs> so while this is all happening, everything's a mess. Rodney Alcala is going around asking people on the street if he could take their photograph. Now, they'd be old, young, men, women. It didn't matter. And everyone is saying yes. Nobody thinks there's anything fucking creepy about this. No. Well, whatever. I guess it was really a wild time. Excuse me, miss. I'm talking to you. Do you mind if I take your photo? <laughs> here. <laughs> but you're no. so pretty, I'd really like to take a picture of you. Yeah, I know. Bye. <laughs> so now we learn about Ellen Hover, and she's gorgeous, slender like a dancer, we're told. Mm-hmm. Her father owned Ciro's, which is a really famous, like, mob-owned nightclub. Never heard of it. Oh, my God. There, It's, like, kind of haunted, mafia-run. Lots of scary shit went down there. It was crazy. Wow. I'm sure there's something created about Ciro's. Ciro's is, like, legendary, but not in really the best way. It's just uh-huh. legendary. <laughs> so, you know, now it's like the big blackout of 77 happens from July 13th into the 14th. Uh-huh. And on July 15th, Ellen is missing. And the cops are searching her apartment. And one of the things they take is, is her calendar. And there was an entry that said she was meeting John Ferguson. On the 15th, there was like something written down that said like on the date that said meeting John Berger. And I was like, first of all, this fucking idiot gave his real fake name, which I think is amazing. I'm like, people are so bad at this, continue to be bad at this. You know, they're like searching for this John Berger guy. Of course, it's not a real name. He doesn't exist. They can't find him. And like this case just goes cold. He goes back to L.A. Mm -hmm. So five months after he returned to L.A., somehow miraculously, the FBI is able to connect the dots between Rodney Acala, the name John Berger, and the note found in L.A. Hoover's calendar and I said I can't decide if we should be impressed or furious like are we impressed that it only took five months or are we mad that it took that long I I went through the same thing but now that it's like like years are going by if we did this in five months okay not bad you're on the right track let's keep going there spoiler they don't so the FBI calls him in ask him about Ellen Hoover and he admits to meeting her he's like I absolutely knew her I went up to Westchester we did a photo shoot and then I don't know what happened I never saw her again so that's why that name John Berger even though I'm Rodney Alcala talking to you that was my photography name or whatever the fuck. And so that was how he explained it away. That was my photography Whatever. Name. His nom de plume or what have you, whatever that is for photography. So they let him go. And then 11 months later, Ellen's body is found in fucking Westchester where Rodney said he was with her. But then, of course, they say there's like no forensic evidence to like lead them to a killer, obviously, because it's the fucking my 70s. So like they're just like, well, we found the body, but there's no closure. Like, how did they solve anything back then? I mean, this is where we get everyone saying, 1970s was considered a serial killer central. The 70s was serial killer central. We need a new term for that. Uh, that's not okay. <laughs> that blew my mind. Serial killer central. There's some piece of shit named the bedroom basher. I don't want to hear another word about it. <gasps> I know. You guys, because we're like... You have the hillside strangler, the night stalker, two freeway killers. You have the bedroom basher. Elsewhere, you have Ted Bundy and John Wayne Gacy killing people in Chicago. I hate everything. And then it's more about like, you know, there weren't any iPhones in the 70s. And it's just like just more about how he's so fucking charming and he's a mediocre white dude and how amazing and he just keeps evading police and being horrible. And I I honestly, I cannot, I cannot 
cannot believe that he's even out after what he did to Tally. It's unbelievable that he's out at all. It's infuriating. And like him being in or out should not rely on the fact of whether or not an eight-year-old girl is going to testify in like in the trial. That's ridiculous. She shouldn't be allowed to. Exactly. She's got to. She's got to heal. She's got. And her parents aren't letting her talk about it. Like, come yeah. on. 19-year-old Jill Barkham. Jill Barkham was from New York. She wanted to take a road trip with a friend. We learned she's very adventurous. And they left New York for LA. And then, like, all we know is that November 10th, 1977, they find her body on Franklin Canyon Road, which I feel is important to tell us. Jill Barkham was found off of Franklin Canyon Road, and it was down the street from Marlon Brando's home at the time. I'm like, is that your way of saying that he was a suspect for five minutes? Why do we know that it's near Marlon Brando's house? Like, what's going on? Why are you telling me that? It's also like the body was found in the middle of the road. There was like no effort to hide the body. The murder had been brutal. Like, her face was unrecognizable. Uh, it, they described uh, the murder as sadistic. And this is becoming a pattern, right? Like, all yeah. of these, like, they're all cold cases to them, but we know now that they're all connected, right? And the, the pattern is forming. Yeah, and we learned that they thought that it was maybe the hillside strangler which would have been a weird coincidence because she actually had a friend that was murdered by the hillside strangler and i was like the world is getting too small jillian i just hate it i hate it all i I hate it all i really i can't believe it was she the one that was murdered by the hillside strangler no she was the dating game killer it was her friend that was murdered by the. those are things those are words you're saying right now those are true words that you're saying i'm going to bed i have to i need to shut the world out was it the bedroom basher or ear aunts the fucking night stalker i know like why i'm going to sleep forever so because like they couldn't connect them because the 70s and no gps and no iphones thank you kurt loader or chris connelly or whatever yeah. so they just say so the case went cold and i have in my notes great i just wrote is this the 16 fucking 40s were they any better at solving murder in 1975 than they were in 1640 answer no. me that question first of all they just blamed it on the witches right. back then <laughs> so it's all bad again doesn't matter what year what decade yesterday today and tomorrow it's all bad oh my god so we learn about two more murders and we're just gonna say their names but it's it's all this horrible, sadistic stuff. So in, yeah. in December of 1977, it's Georgia Wickstead. She was a nurse. She worked in cardiac care. Like, oh my God, just being a hero. <sighs> the first thing they say about her is that she's absolutely gorgeous, to which I said, stop it. Stop I it. Stop. I know they're all gorgeous. We're all gorgeous. Every last <laughs> one of us. I'm saying it now. This is what's going to make me stand and being like, I am gorgeous. Is fucking 2020 <laughs> being a nightmare. Everyone's gorgeous. Stop. <laughs> right? So, yes. you know, they like they find a palm print, but like, say it with me, like a fucking game show. The case goes cold. Yeah. Then and like Charlotte Lamb, we learned about Charlotte, and she was murdered the exact same way. That like this horrible, like brutal, sadistic murder, and she was posed in this humiliating way, and it's just like the fucking worst. So then we meet Dr. Veronica Thomas. She's a court-appointed psychologist, and she's like, "Oh, I know, I know Rodney. I met him like six times." <laughs> she's very calm when talking about her old friend Rodney. Many times, the rapist killer, uh, antisocial person, will pose dead bodies, and they do want. Uh, law enforcement and other people to see this and there's a message in that the message for Rodney is that I am here you will remember me he was a psychopath. He was terrifying. What would he was ever doing out on the street? I'll never know. Well, not only is he out on the street, now he's going on the fucking dating game. Okay, so now we're here. <laughs> also 2020, now that you're on my list, I just have to, we keep getting these weird coming up on slash previously on yeah. going in and out of commercials and they're gaslighting me because it's making me feel like I just zoned out for 10 minutes. I know. But it's just a bunch of totally out of context clips in the middle of the story. It's very it's, confusing. 2020, please don't do that. <laughs> It makes our job very difficult because we're taking notes for like every fucking second of this thing. And I kept rewinding. I was like, how did I miss that? What is wrong with my, what is wrong with me? Nothing. I know. So they come out of the commercial and they say. So by 1978, the body count is piling up. We really need to find another expression other than body count. Stop saying body count. Or like dumping body. Or just, we really need to completely uproot the vocabulary of this world. But you know what? We're going to the dating game, everybody. And we meet Michael and Ellen Metzger. Michael Metzger was the executive person producer Ellen yeah. was the casting coordinator now I am upset with well, Ellen Metzger I understand what she's saying because the executive producer guy is like in terms of putting him on as a contestant I think on the form I wrote NW which was my symbol for no way no darn way <laughs> is this guy going to be on the show because I noticed that he had a very strange personality and Ellen is like it's like are you kidding he's so attractive everyone's going to love him all the women are going to love him and Ellen's like, are you kidding? Women will love him. And I'm just like, Ellen, look, I know we do the, we say like, let the women do the work, but could you yeah. maybe sit this round out? Cause you're wrong. <laughs> you're wrong. Like strikingly handsome and charming when everyone else, like the, Michael was like, I wrote 
no darn way. That was my own special code. And I said, absolutely not. He's a fucking weirdo. If you guys remember the format, it's three men behind a wall and the woman asking them questions. So Rodney is bachelor number one. We meet bachelor number two. He's here now. His name is Jed. He's like, bachelor number one. You're a little creepy. Uh, Notice that right away. In the green room, he jumps in. He says, I always get my girl. I always get my girl and doing this weird voice. Speaking of voices, everyone move over and pull over and whatever because Cheryl Bradshaw is here. Cheryl is the woman of the hour. She's asking the questions. She's like the lady. She's the bachelorette or whatever. Now, okay. I'm number one, no prude. Number right. two, I know the whole vibe of the dating game was to be like really raunchy and yeah. provocative and tongue in cheek and over the top and all that stuff. But Cheryl is a voiceover actor. Yes. And God damn it, does she use it. And she says, suppose I was auditioning you for a private class and you're a dirty old man. And you're a dirty old man. Take it. And you're a dirty old man. <laughs> This is weird serial killer or not. Like, this is just very odd. Rodney, I'm, I swear to God, this is terrifying. He just starts making, like, rape sounds. Like, yes. horrible, grunting, aggressive yes. rape sounds. And everyone laughs. They think it's I hilarious. Know. Come on, over here. <laughs> then he's telling her to peel his banana. The producer's like, oh. bada bing, bada boom, it was perfect. <laughs> he fucking wins. She picks him. She picks him, right? And so they're finally face to face. And the minute they meet, Cheryl's like, I've made a huge mistake. She hates him immediately. I know. Does not pass the vibe check. Red flags all over the place. And she calls Ellen, the producer, the next day. And she's like, girl, I'm not going on that date. There are weird vibes. I really don't like them. I'm not comfortable. I'm not going. Now, I thought this was the worst and most tasteless way to introduce our next victim. I truly thought they were going to be like, you signed the fucking papers, idiot. You're going on a date with this guy. You thought voice actress was going to be the the next victim? He's the dating game killer because he went on the dating game once. I truly thought this was going to take like a very horrible turn but to my surprise Ellen's like of course I told her she didn't have to go and I'm like oh thank god I really didn't know where this was going I really didn't so unfortunately now we're meeting Jill Parento she's a 21 year old college student she lived alone this is another murder we're gonna just hear about a bunch of horrible things and I'm sorry to do that but it's it's important because of how unavoidable this was and how disgusting he really was and it's all the same it's all that like sadistic and brutal and posed in a humiliating way again they're so avoidable they're all a lot of things but they're mostly avoidable. And so now he's like getting younger again, right? Like from, from like, the, the murders. He's not like Benjamin Buttoning. He's like going back. Right. From- <laughs> yeah, the murders we know about, like they, they go from like 20 something women and now Lori Wirtz is 17 years old. We have to know that she's on roller skates again, stop sexualizing these people. But I will say this is interesting because what happens is on June 20th, 1979, he's living with his fucking mother because he's a loser. And if you're living with your mother, you're fine. You're probably not a serial killer. Are you Rodney? No, then you get a pass. Right. <laughs> but he leaves her house and is heading to Huntington Beach. And, you know, he meets the 17-year-old Lori Wirtz and she's on roller skates and he takes her picture and she's here to tell us about it. We see the pictures and we learn that this encounter is important for two reasons because the pictures will prove that he was in Huntington Beach that day and he later tries to deny it. And it shows that he's actually like on the prowl looking for victims again. And I, just, I thought it was crazy that Lori was here and we saw the pictures from that day. I thought that was like, I'm getting chills thinking about it. It was really scary. And yeah. what he tried to do. He was asking me all kinds of questions like where I'm from, my name, my age. He tried really hard to get me in the car. He tried to get me in the car and leave my friend on the beach. She's like, I'm not ditching my friend and getting in your car, you fucking creep. And so he's like, okay, fine. So then he leaves and he goes and finds Robin Samso, who's 12 years old. But you know what? Robin is awesome. And her friend Bridget is awesome fucking too. And we meet Robin's older sister. And like the story here is that like he goes farther down the beach where he meets Robin. And he's like, we learned from friend Bridget that like he was trying to take their picture and Bridget was not fucking into it. But Robin is really young and he tries to get Robin to go with her and she won't. And then Robin and Bridget go back to Bridget's house and Robin's got to leave because she's 12 years old and has a job at a dance studio answering phones? Well, what happens is, well, yeah, that we'll get to that. We'll unpack that in a mere moment. Right. But what happens is Bridget's <laughs> like, fuck you, dummy. Like, we're not like taking pictures with you. And then yeah. he puts his hand on 12-year-old Robin's leg. And he reached out and put his hand on Robin's leg. And that's when I grabbed her. I said, like, no, this this isn't good. So one of the moms comes over and is like, who are you? Why are you talking to him? And he scurries off like a cockroach. 
scurries off like a cockroach because one of their moms comes over. Exactly. So, which I love. I loved. I loved that they just like had each other's back. So Bridget and Robin go back to Bridget's house, and Robin, like you said, has dance at four p.m. But to help pay for her classes, she also answers the phones at the dance studio. Who is letting a twelve-year-old answer the phone for their business? That seems like a weird choice. I, I mean, to me, I, I have, I'm assuming that Robin really was very good at this because otherwise, what are we all doing here? Just let her do her plies. You know what I'm saying? Her little arabesque. Because that was like back in the day when you had to know how to like transfer and patch people through and shit. I couldn't do that today if I had to with a gun to my head. See, to me, I think it's maybe a lot easier than it is now with the transferring. Oh, yeah. Maybe she just picked up the phone and said, hi, you know, right. so-and-so ballet. <laughs> oh, thanks. Okay, great. Like, what, what do you need to call the ballet studio for? Show up and do your pirouette. A little arabesque action who cares so five o'clock rolls around and robin's brother calls bridget and she's like is she with you because she's not at the ballet studio and like when an hour goes by and nobody knows like nobody can find her 12 year old bridget calls the police right and 12 year old bridget does more than that because she does a composite sketch about rodney and she does an amazing job as does the sketch artist because there's no question it's like it's like a photo of rodney alcala yeah he is so scary looking like and like the composite sketches don't do anything to soften those people's appearances girl no and also remember like part of it it's kind of a fascinating thing because part of it is Bridget's memory, right? Yeah. And so he was scary to her. So when she's describing totally. him, he's probably, his features are probably a little harsher, but yep. he's ugly and a piece of shit inside and out. So whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so the cops are like, oh, that's fucking Rodney. Like, okay, great. So by July 11th, 12 days after Robin goes missing, a park ranger finds her human remains in the Sierra Madre. So they arrest Rodney. And it's so devastating. Like Robin's sister is here. And like, we get so much about Robin's mom and how like yeah. the mom was never the same after this. I mean, like, this shit destroys families. It's so fucking terrible. Yeah. So they arrest Rodney. They get a search warrant for his house. Uh, Excuse me, whose house? His mother's house. His mother's house. Again, only shade if you're Rodney because everybody hates you and you have no place to live. 100%. And your mom's probably an enabler. Anyway, so they find a receipt for a storage locker in Seattle. To which I screamed at the top of my lungs. Like, what are they going to fucking find in there? Oh, my God. Well, I don't know. Almost nothing because they can't take it because the warrant doesn't include... Paper? Paperwork is not a part of the search warrant, so they cannot collect it. But it's in plain sight, so they write down the information. Can you help us at all? You can search his house, but oh, like you can't take a piece of paper if it's valuable. But that means nothing because they just write down all the information that's on it, and they take that different piece of paper instead of the actual piece of paper. And then we learn in one of these, like going into the commercial moments, that his sister goes to visit him in prison, and he says to the sister, "This is overheard by the cops." One of his sisters went to visit Alcala in jail and they started talking about the storage locker. And Rodney Alcala is overheard saying where's the effect of well it's good but they don't know about the storage locker. He says that openly to his sister which means his sister was talking to him about the murders which she clearly knows about. Yeah a family full of enablers I'm saying it. I'm assigning them Give me the fucking picture of this bullshit sister. Where is she? Oh dead I hope. So now (laughs) now we're in Seattle Washington and we're at the storage locker. Of course we are. To which I say if it's Patrick Hines cop day and I'm the one that has to open the storage locker in Seattle I cannot imagine it like what I thought they were going to find on the other side of that door oh my god this is also why I'm never going on storage wars by the way because serial killers everywhere oh my god and you don't know what's in there until they open the thing no uh uh this is not for me no we'd have to call somebody else in Steve Steve or Mike because I'm not I don't want to see it either uh uh I would not step up to the plate here also Steve and Mike in cop uniforms I'm I'm thinking about that now oh yeah I'm not a cop person Person, yeah. But I'll take Mike in a dark blue suit. I'll take that. <laughs> I prefer that. <laughs> so here's what they find. They find thousands of pictures of young people, older people, all kinds of people in compromised positions. They also find various forms of jewelry, a bunch of different earrings and little keepsakes. Those are trophies. They find Robin's earrings. They find these gold ball earrings that she was wearing the day she disappeared. Thank God for that photo because that proves it. Yeah. So in 1980, he's charged for the murder of Robin Samso. You guys, Robin's mother. Oh, my God. I look, I'm going to like keep my opinion out of this. She shows up with a gun to court. Yeah. You know how people are like, I'm going to fucking kill him. No, Marianne Connolly said that and like took the steps to do it. You guys, she put a gun in her purse. There's no metal detectors. We see her with with her hands on her purse. She was going right. to blow the guy away in court. And you know what? I'm inserting my opinion. Good for you. If I may, that's a pocketbook if I've ever yeah. seen one. It's not a purse. <laughs> no. That's a pocketbook. It's a pocketbook. <laughs> in the courtroom, 
she's like fiddling with the trigger. She's like yep. ready to go. And suddenly. I do remember her telling me that she heard Robin's voice and told her not to do it. So she had changed her mind. She says that she hears Robin's voice who yeah. told her, please don't do this. Because that's also the end of Marianne's life. Like 100%. it's never going to do what you think it will, Marianne. Like uh -huh. maybe in your mind and your, in your fantasy. And I hope you have that and you work through that anger. But like it ruins your life too. So just Million don't percent. do yeah. that right now. He deserves to be dead. I'm not a death penalty person. I'm right. just saying. Like, it, like I just wish he was unalive. I just right. wish he didn't exist at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's just I what I I don't want wish. him sentenced to death. I just want him to be unalive. I just don't want him to have existed in the first place. Place. Oh, exactly. It takes the jury five hours to convict this piece of shit. And honestly, that's way too long. Five I, seconds. Totally. <laughs> five hours? What were you discussing? I what know. on earth could you I, possibly have discussed? I know. I don't get it. I don't I get know. it. I know. And he's convicted and sentenced to death. And I said, thank you for not dragging us through this fucking trial. Like, sometimes the trial part of these documentaries is 45 minutes on its own. Oh, well, too bad, girl, because we have like three more trials to get to. Because in 1984, <laughs> he appeals the case. They reverse the murder conviction to which I asked what the actual fuck the Supreme Court overturned it. The verdict was overturned by the California Supreme Court because the justices determined that the jurors in the trial had been improperly informed of Alcala's prior sex crimes. Here's my thing. They overturned his murder conviction, but not Adnan's. What is going on? What is going on? And they're like, no, we already knew about the other rapes. So yeah. no, that's, and I'm like, I'm sorry, you, did you just hear that? That because you knew about the other right. sex crimes, then you're overturning Oh my God, make it make sense. But it's okay. 1986, he gets a second trial and seven years to the day since Robin went missing, he's convicted again and resentenced to death. Right. To which I ask why there's still 21 minutes left. I know. <laughs> because he, just for, if you're keeping track at home, he's been sentenced to death twice yeah. and it's been overturned twice because in 2001, the death penalty is overturned, which great. But he's, and the thing is, he's been in custody since 1979. He's 58 years old. He looks 158. <laughs> but does. the thing to remember is like, it's very painful for the families to have to yeah. keep going through this but it's not like every time like when he was getting that retrial it's not like he was out among us he was still like rotting away you know yes, yes, if that helps totally. you at all so this is where prosecutor Matt Murphy gets to shine because he's the one in charge of like the retrial or whatever and so he goes back to the evidence he's going back to that pouch of jewelry that they found in that Seattle storage locker and they're able to recover DNA the DNA matched Charlotte Lamb Jill Parento Georgia Wickstead and Jill Barkham at that point Rodney Alcala is clearly now known as a serial killer. So, like, because he was retried, now they can get him on fucking four other murders. Yeah, so, he, like, basically Matt Murphy uses 2003 science on a 1979 case. Totally. And that's why we're here. So, clearly he's a serial killer, this yeah. Rodney piece of shit. Matt Murphy is on it. He's out for blood. Alcala decides to represent himself, to which I just said, yes. Yeah, 66 years old. Okay, Rodney, let's he's go. He's so fucking stupid, but the only downside to that is that it means that he gets to cross-examine the witnesses and he gets to question mm -hmm. Robin Samso's mother on the fucking stand. Like, she has to sit there and tolerate questions from the man who's been convicted of murdering her daughter twice. Yeah, and that's sadistic, too. Like, that's yeah. that shows you really how evil this guy is and yeah. asking her about the earrings and trying to argue with her. And Matt Murphy's like, I don't know what everyone's all worked up about. All the jury sees is the man who murdered this poor woman's daughter cross-examining her. All the jury sees is a murderer badgering his own victim's mother. So yeah. like, this was kind of great for me. Traumatizing, yes. But for the case, yeah. pretty good. So again, this time he's found guilty on all five charges. He gets the death penalty fucking again. But then California in 2019 puts a moratorium on all death penalty cases and they all get stays of execution. That includes like Scott Peterson. That's what yeah. happened with him too. Right. So he's sentenced to 25 to life, but he's already in prison for life. So fuck him. Yeah. But then, so it ends with like all those photos that they found found in the storage locker are released because there were thousands of them and there are people like they want to know are there more victims out there that we don't know about and so they're hoping that the public can help identify the victims and now we're back at the beginning right. with Chris Thornton. Chris is that woman on the motorcycle whose remains they found but the remains were unidentified for 40 years. Her right. sister's son read a news story about the pictures and forwarded them to his mom because he's like well I know that your sister my aunt has been missing all this time. The timeline about lines up scroll through these pictures and see if you see Aunt Chris and she does and she finds the motorcycle picture and Aunt Chris had this like anomaly with her pinky toe and I'm like that's I think that's Chris and and sure enough I looked at her little pinky toe which I remember it, it just was very distinctive you know I kind of knew 
that that was her. And then they used the national database of DNA. And so with all of that together, they were able to determine what happened to Chris. So they haul in Rodney. Or they try to. He's like dying in prison, so they've got to go to him. Whatever. <laughs> they haul him into the room. Just let me have it. And so they're like, fucking answer. Answer yeah. me. Answer for your crimes. And so they charge him for the murder of Chris Thornton. He's in his 70s now. And they ask him, they're like, tell us what happened, dude. Like, what's your side of the story? Yeah. And he gets even creepier. And he like relives the horrible things he did to Chris He's Thornton. Cr- caressing the picture of her before he even acknowledges that he knows her. And they say they can see him like reliving it. It is fucking disgusting. It is disgusting. But guess what? He's in prison for the rest of his life. He's going to die there. Isn't that wonderful? Is he still alive like to this day? Yeah. He's going to be there forever. Isn't that amazing? He's going to be like miserable for the rest of his shitty fucking garbage life. That makes me happy. Oh my God, girl, we did the 2020 Dating Game Killer episode. What a piece of shit, this guy. Yeah, and also go to the 2020 site and they have all the photos on the oh. site. So I don't know, like that might be helpful for people or give some closure. So just so you know, like if you can help ID someone or I don't yeah. know if you know someone, it's on the 2020 site. So go check it out. Oh my God, you guys. Also, if you want more Jillian and me, join us on the Patreon. Over 300 ad-free full bonus episodes to download a bitch right this second. Girl, what are we doing next? We're doing Misha and the Wolves. Do you know about this? I've heard heard of it? Remind me. It's about this woman named Misha who apparently was raised by wolves escaping <gasps> Nazi Germany. What? And did she or didn't she? <laughs> and the lies and the cheating and the lying and the stealing. I don't know anything about it. I guess we'll find out together. I'm very excited. So stay tuned for the trailer for Misha and the Wolves. After that, our hilarious outtakes. Follow us on Instagram, you guys. True Crime Obsessed Podcast. I'm at Patrick Hines underscore. You're Jillian with a G and all the things. And that's it. Yeah, you know, we're just having, I think, again, I I'm, we're having a nice time. I don't we know if anyone else. Nice time. <laughs> All right, we love you guys. We love you. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. I could never make up this plot. If I did, somebody would say this is preposterous. This would not happen. Misha is a Holocaust survivor. She's here to tell her astonishing story. You could have heard a pin drop. When she was only seven years old, she walked alone through Nazi-occupied countries across thousands of miles in search of her deported parents. I was thinking this would make a fascinating book. My agent said Disney wants this. Oprah wants this. That was the jackpot. A cruel exploiter of an innocent Holocaust survivor. They came in with a massive judgment against me. 22.5 million. Ah. All of a sudden, flash. This doesn't add up. I needed to get to the truth. I was going through old records. I had no idea what I was going to find. I was looking at names and places and dates. Something's wrong. She's trying to hide something. How can this possibly be? She's both a victim and a villain in this story. A woman would ask three bachelors a bunch of questions and they couldn't see each other. So like we could see everybody. We, like I was watching the dating game. I was not even a twinkle in anyone's eye yet. I love it so much. Happy holidays to me. Thank you so much. I needed that. You have no idea. And now we have to hear, you know, my least favorite part. We have to get the Rodney Alcala story. I don't give a shit. I don't give a fuck. My knowledge on how the army works, you might be surprised to learn is low. They're just like wandering on the road. I'm like, that's where Freddie lives. That's where like Jason's mother lives. Haven't you seen Friday the 13th? 